0: are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. Your reader's name, Susan Shirey. This is a weekly program, and this one is being recorded on the 7th of January for the listening week that begins the 8th. Our sources for this Program vary from week to week. Going to open this week with tributes for Sidney Portier. These two are brought to you from theroot.com. First we have Sidney Portier Groundbreaking Legend passes away at ninety-four. This is written by Stephanie Holland. Actor, director, activist, Sidney Poitier, has died at the age of 94. The word legend gets thrown around now, but if there is someone who personifies legendary, it's Sidney Poitier. The trailblazing actor, director, activist's death at the age of 94 was announced January 7th by Bohemian, Minister of Foreign Affairs Fred Mitchell. No further details on his passing were given. When we talk about elders who literally built the world we live in, Portier is near the top of that list. Born during a family trip to Miami, he lived in the Bahamas until he moved to Miami when he was fifteen, before heading to New York at sixteen to begin his theater career. Poitier's first major film role came in 1955's Blackboard Jungle. He followed that up with The Defiant Ones, a history-making performance that netted him an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, a first for a black performer. As his career took off in films like A Raisin in the Sun and Lilies of the Field, for which he became the first black actor to win the Oscar for black, oh, pardon me, for Best Actor. Portier used his success and influence to avoid being typecast, ensuring that he played characters with agency and dignity. In 1967, Portier became the biggest box office draw of the year with "To Sir with Love," "In the Heat of the Night," and guess who's coming to dinner. For a black man to be the leading commercial star of Hollywood was unheard of, but Portier made a career out of breaking barriers. In the 70s, he surprised everyone by moving into the director's chair with the comedies Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again, and Stir Crazy, which was the highest-grossing film by a black director at that time. With his last on-screen acting role coming in the 2001 TV movie The Last Brickmaker in America, Portier spent recent years receiving flowers for his extraordinary life. Upon accepting his Oscar for Training Day, Denzel Washington said, I'll always be chasing you, Sidney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. There's nothing I would rather do. Among his numerous awards and accolades are multiple lifetime achievement awards, honorary Oscar, Kennedy Center honor, pardon me, Kennedy Center honor, the Golden Globe Cecil B. DeMille Award, Knight of the Commander of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama. They say to leave the world a better than you found it. Well, Sidney Poitier has changed the world for the better in ways that will be immeasurable for generations to come. Next collection of tributes, also compiled by Stephanie Holland. Hollywood pays tribute to Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier is remembered as the entertainment world mourns the esteemed actor. The passing of legendary actor Sidney Poitier has resonated throughout Hollywood the Bahamian Minister of Foreign Affairs announced his death at the age of 94. Portier was the Academy Award-winning star of films like A Raisin in the Sun, The Defiant Ones, To Sir with Love, In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and Lilies of the Field, for which he became the first black actor to win an Oscar for Best Actor. As expected for someone of his stature, the tributes are pouring in. Oprah Winfrey, who was very close to Portier, released a statement on Twitter that read, in part, My honor to have loved him as a mentor, friend, brother, confidant, wisdom teacher, the utmost highest regard and praise for his most magnificent, gracious, eloquent life. Billy D. Williams tweeted, You were an incredibly beautiful, kind soul who changed the lives of so many and a hero to all. The world was a much better place because you were in it, and we will miss you. Rest in peace, dear. Geoffrey Wright wrote Sidney Poitier, what a landmark actor, one of a kind. What a beautiful, gracious, warm, genuinely regal man. Rest in peace, sir. With love, an egot winning legend in her own right, whoopi Goldberg, posted the lyrics from to Sir with love, writing, "If you wanted the sky, I would write across the sky in letters that would soar a thousand feet high to Sir pardon me to sir, with love sir sidney portier r i p he showed us how to reach for the stars. Questlove posted a photo of Portier from Let's Do It Again on Instagram, writing in part, You already know I can spew paragraphs of what his activism represented, especially in a time that his accolades were happening during the civil rights era. But man, this is more of a personal reflect because of the bonding his 70s movie did for my family and I. Rest in peace and thank you. Portier's legacy runs throughout the industry with filmmakers like Will Packer and Tyler Perry, as well as actors Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, and Josh Gad, all posting tributes. Sidney Portier passing will leave the world feeling a lot less beautiful and dignified. Next article comes via the New York Times from Critics Notebook. What three Broadway shows tell us about racial progress? The female protagonists in Trouble in Mind, Caroline, or Change, and Clyde's show the richness that comes from having a multitude of black voices on stage. This is written by Salamisha Salamisha Tillett, and it was posted on December 27th. It was updated January 5th. Now that Broadway has returned and made it through the fall and as it deals with a raft of cancellations because of the resurgent pandemic, I've been thinking a lot about the meaning of progress. Promoted in large part by the racial reckoning of 2020, the theater industry has responded to criticisms about its systemic racism by featuring an impressive number of plays by black writers or with black leads. In the last few weeks, I've seen a handful of these shows. Trouble in Mind, Caroline or Change, and Clyde's. Individually, their plots and period settings offer great insight into how far we've really come. But taken together, they reveal a full range of aesthetic and racial possibilities that exist for their African American characters once the white gaze is diminished or fully removed my feelings largely align with the points Alice Childress makes in her 1955 play Trouble in Mind, a comedy-drama about a veteran black actress named Willetta Mayer, who, while preparing to stage an anti-lynching play called Chaos in Belleville for Broadway, begins to challenge the racial paternalism through which its white playwright and director insist on depicting black Southern life. More specifically, the plot follows Willetta's mounting frustrations about her role as a mother who does not protect her black son from a white mob after he tries to vote. It's an act that seems inconceivable to Willetta. Trouble in Mind, which was originally produced in Greenwich Village, did not make it to Broadway in 1957 after its white producers insisted that Childress provide a more conciliatory conciliatory ending for her black and white characters and she refused. Now, Charles Randolph Wright, a black director, is overseeing the Roundabout Theatre Company's Broadway production of the show at the American Airlines Theatre. In the play, Willetta, portrayed brilliantly by Lachance, initially accepts her character's subservience and exaggerated southern drawl, and the problematic messaging about civil rights in Chaos in Belleville as the price she must pay in order to have one of the few parts offered to black actors at the time. Set backstage, as Willetta and her fellow cast members begin rehearsing with the director, Al Manners, played by Michael Ziegen. We follow Willetta's progression from a woman trying to school a younger black actor on how to ingratiate himself to white people, like Manners, who can make or break his career, to a woman threatening to leave the production if her role continues to traffic in such offensive and absurd racial stereotypes. As she evolves the audience is exposed to multiple gazes, the intimate conversations that black performers have with one another beyond the purview of white people, the figurative masks that black actors wear in front of their white peers and theater power brokers as a matter of professional survival, and the white gaze that Al and the other white characters don throughout the rehearsals in which they slip back and forth between declarations of how liberal they are and their racist insults. These three perspectives collide when Willetta fully exposes Al's racism, a climax that not only puts her career at risk, but jeopardizes the future of the play. However, in Childress's deft hands, this potential loss is not a tragedy, but rather a reversal of fortunes for Willetta. Once Al is no longer able to determine her fate, she is able to give the performance of a lifetime and live out her dignity in its fullness pardon me in its fullness on stage. I thought a lot about Willetta's limited theatrical options, which were a mammy, a maid, an emotionally repressed southern mother, while watching Tony Kushner and Janine Tessori's musical, Caroline or Change which first appeared on Broadway in 2004 and now is being also produced by the Roundabout Theatre on Broadway at Studio 54. Set in Louisiana in 1963, eight years after Trouble in Mine made made its debut and when the Civil Rights Movement was reaching full bloom, the musical Carolina Change does not focus on the major events affecting the nation at that time the assassination of Medgar Evers, the March on Washington, or the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Instead, Caroline or Change is a semi-autobiographical exploration of how the country's racial dynamics affected an 8-year-old boy named Noah Gelman. His middle-class Jewish-American Southern family, their 39-year-old black housekeeper, Caroline Thibodeau, played by the breathtaking Sharon D. Clark and her three children. When we first meet Caroline, she is doing laundry in the Gelman's basement. Physically alone, her world seems to come alive with the, when the radio, the washing machine, and the dryer become characters on stage and provide Caroline with a sense of camaraderie and comfort that she does not share with her white employers. Public spaces are even more segregated, so she finds community in the moon and the bus who speak to her as well. The richness of Caroline's life, however, is always illusory. The gaze through which we understand her story is never hers, but rather that of Noah's as he reminisces on his childhood and his family's, especially his stepmother Rose's, fraught relationship with her during this turbulent time in American history. To his credit, Kushner's script never pretends that Noah's lens is Caroline's. One of the musical's most revealing scenes takes Noah's myopic vision head-on. After Rose, played by Casey Casey Levy, tries to teach Noah a lesson by asking Caroline to take home any, quote, change that she finds in his pockets before she washes them, Noah imagines Caroline's children at home, happy to spend their entire evening thinking about him and how they will spend the money. This satirical turn challenges Noah's nostalgia, putting his, putting his racial narcissism front and center. It is also a perfect counterpoint to the professed liberalism of Al Manners from the earlier trouble in mind and the unacknowledged white male privilege that he wields over his cast and stage crew. And yet, Caroliner change still feels incomplete, not because Noah and Caroline are unable to resolve their conflict or because the unrest driving the Civil Rights Movement is nodded to through the toppling of a Confederate statue. But because of the entirety of the show, Caroline remains Noah's fantasy, and thus unknowable to us. She is not a fully realized character. Such distance, of course, is realistic, Memory is fallible, and given their differences, I expect Noah to have very little access to Caroline's inner life or imagination. But I longed to see her unmediated through his sentimentality and truly on her own terms. Though Caroline is the protagonist of this musical, and Clark really does own this stage, Caroline is not fully empowered, her agency limited in the story because it was not really hers in the first place. This is not to say that I need to have an all access pass to a black woman's interiority in order to appreciate the depth of her humanity. In fact, I found the title character in Lynn Nottage's comedy, Clyde's, played by the ever perfect Uzo Abuda, no, pardon me, that's Uzo Aduba, at the Helen Hayes Theater to be refreshingly inaccessible the owner of a truck stop diner in Redding, Pennsylvania, Clyde, also oversees the kitchen that she only staffs with formerly incarcerated men and women. Not only does she impose her exacting demands on her employees, a direct contrast to the zen-like style of her head-cook Montrellis, the wonderful Ron Cephas Jones, But she is the only person whose backstory we never learn and who, besides her endless stream of costume changes, has no clear character arc. In other words, she is intentionally flat, a feature that Aduba's nuanced performance leans into with wit and grit, making Clyde a rarity for a black woman actress, an anti-hero. She does not have agency. She has full-fledged power. Her omnipresence is most likely a stand-in for state violence, or Satan, or both. Unlike Willetta, who needs to break free of roles that confine her, or Caroline, who we assume feels suffocated by the oppressive conditions of the South, Clyde is the one who traps her employees in a permanent space of unfreedom and social purgatory. One of the things about where we are today is now we have a multitude of black voices on the stage. Nottage said to me during a recent interview at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, he went on, I feel the freedom to put someone on stage who isn't perfect, who isn't heroic, who isn't necessarily showing the best of us, but showing an aspect of us. In other words, Clyde's villainy is also an aesthetic liberation for Nottage a character that is neither born out of nor now embattled with the white gaze. Ultimately, such provocative personalities are signs of progress for us all, both on and off stage. We can only hope that such roles continue to exist, not as a one-off or in a vacuum, but as a sister among many. This is the Broadway that Willetta Mayer really fought for as she longed to celebrate the complexity, diversity, and messiness of black life. Our next article is in honor of a recent New Year's Eve passing. This one was posted on December 30th. It comes from the New York Times. Also, it's an opinion piece written by Esau McCauley. I grew up celebrating New Year's Eve like Frederick Douglass. And there is a photo of some musicians flanked by some people in a balcony clapping. And the byline under the photo, the caption under the photo says, St. Luke AME Church in Harlem during the watch night service on th- December 31st, 2008. The last place that I wanted to be on December 31st was church. But there I was on New Year's Eve clustered next to a host of other black teenagers in the back of the sanctuary for our Watch Night service. We were waiting to be freed to go to the clubs and house parties that had begun their festivities without us. Watch Night is a tradition in black churches that began as a way to celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation. For my congregation in Huntsville, Alabama in the 1990s, that meant choirs from black churches all over the city sang hymns and spirituals. A stream of pastors ascended the pulpit to deliver impassioned sermons. Their aim was to send the congregation into a frenzy of praise and thanksgiving that shook the wooden floors and the stone pillars of the sanctuaries. They wanted us to end the year with a shout. We may not have wanted to go to church those nights, but even the most stubborn of us teenagers could rarely resist the full impact of the preaching and singing. Watch night celebrated survival. To be black and alive for another year in Alabama felt like a miracle. The elderly among us had survived the cotton fields and Jim Crow and the crack epidemic and the war on drugs. Often, a few faces, young and old, who had attended Watch Night in the past, were no longer with us. Alongside the celebration, there was the memory of those we had lost to injustice and human frailty. Watch Night, as we celebrate it now, began on New Year's Eve, 1862, the night before Abraham Lincoln's proclamation went into effect on January 1st. Black congregations in the North and the South gathered to keep vigil and pray for the freedom of enslaved people in Confederate states. Frederick Douglass captured the anticipation that marked that day when he addressed his home church, church, Spring Street, African Methodist Episcopal Zion, in Rochester, New York, on the Sunday before emancipation. He said, It surpasses our most enthusiastic hopes that we live at such a time and are likely to witness the downfall, at least the legal downfall, of slavery in America. It is a moment for joy, thanksgiving, and praise. What does this celebration mean for black Americans some 160 years later? What, to the descendants of the enslaved, is New Year's Eve? Watch Night argues that God has answered our prayers for liberation, both spiritual and material. To the cynic who asks, what has God done for black people? We reply on Watch Night. He has freed the slaves and changed our lives. Over time, Watch Night has taken on a second purpose. My mother, and black parents all over America, used it to keep us off the streets during the scary hours. My mom knew the frivolity of New Year's Eve parties in my neighborhood could lead to trouble. I remained one encounter with an excessively hostile party-goer or overzealous police officer away from a life-changing incident. Driving while black in the early hours of a new year was not for the faint of heart. That was the complicated thrill of the new year. It was danger, possibility, love and hope, condensed into competing parties and church services. Often we would attend watch night and then go to the club, shouting and shaking our hips at both. We were struggling with who we wanted to become and wrestling with the ever-present options and temptations of black life in America. Kanye West and Jay-Z may suggest that there was no church in the wild, But the church I knew was precisely there in the wild where the black people were. It kept watch. The church made the case that we needed goodness, truth, beauty, and holiness to give us hope. It acknowledged the centuries-long string of injustices that led to many of the difficulties we now face, and it opposed them. But those sins, past and present, did not relieve us of moral agency. The church at its best stood vigil, making a case for a better way to be human than a utilitarian ethic that used our shared trauma to justify exploiting other suffering black people. It argued that the same God who opposes institutional racism travels all the way down to personal evil, resisting the ways that we harm one another. By arguing for both societal change and personal transformation, Watch night suggests that justice and righteousness are not so easily separated. Juneteenth, which recently became a federal holiday, remembers that news of the Emancipation Proclamation did not reach all of the enslaved right away. There were some who knew that freedom was on the horizon and those who had no idea of the momentous changes shaking American society. It was the work of those who knew about the newfound freedom to contend for those who could not fend for themselves. We are not free until everyone is. Each New Year's Eve reminds us that the work is never finished. Douglas knew that. He said, "...the slave having ceased to be the abject slave of a single master, his enemies will endeavor to make him the slave of society at large." because of his prophetic imagination and the painful lessons of history, we saw that something like Jim Crow was on the horizon. He knew that law and custom would endeavor to return us again and again to servitude. What is the solution to that ever-present threat? Douglas said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Each generation of black folks has taken up this watch-keeping guided by a moral compass that transcends the limited imagination of the powerful. We have done so out of respect to the generations whose vigils, filled with prayer, thanksgiving, and sanctified dissatisfaction, won us the freedoms we now enjoy. It's been years since I attended a watch night service. I miss them. A large pardon me, a largely white university experience My wife's military service in Japan and graduate studies in Britain took me far from the black churches that kept watch. I spent too many years with those who do not remember the deadly slave ship, the dehumanizing auction block, or the daring midnight escapes to the north with God as the only hope. Now that I am back in a black church in the United States, I'm looking forward to introducing my children to the practice of keeping watch after the COVID pandemic allows our local church to resume its full schedule of services. Hopefully, Watch Night will connect them to a heritage too precious to lose. On the edge of those New Year's Eves at church, time felt thin. We seemingly stepped inside history, if only for a moment, to join with the great cloud of witnesses that lauded black freedom and mourned those slaves who died before freedom came. Too many New Year's Eve gatherings know only celebration. They do not know how to lament the lives lost or how to inspire the commitment that comes from honoring their legacies. Those parties are too free of our histories. There are a number of New Year's resolutions on the horizon, I am sure we will fail at most of them. But I hope that we do not fail to take up the responsibilities handed to us by our ancestors. We must, in 2022, take up the watch so that the coming generation might inherit a more free and just society. Moving to some news articles now. This one is written by Jenny Gross, also still reading from the New York Times. This was posted December 31st. Virginia sues town of Windsor, accusing it of discriminatory policing. The suit comes after a months-long investigation which Attorney General Mark Herring said uncovered a pattern of discriminatory, unconstitutional policing. Virginia's attorney general filed a lawsuit on Thursday against the town of Windsor, seeking changes in policing and saying that his office's months long investigation uncovered evidence of discriminatory, unconstitutional policing. The Windsor police came under scrutiny after an incident in December of 2020 when police officers threatened and pepper sprayed Karen Nasario, a black and Latino military officer, at a traffic stop, an encounter that was caught on camera. Virginia's Attorney General Mark Herring said in a statement that, while our investigation was spurred by the egregious treatment against Lt. Nosario, that we all saw in body cam footage, we discovered that this incident was indicative of much larger problems within the department. The investigation revealed, huge disparities in enforcement against African-American drivers, and a troubling lack of policies and procedures to prevent discriminatory or unconstitutional policing. This was the first time the state of Virginia has sued a law enforcement agency under a new law that gives the Attorney General the right to do so in cases involving civil rights violations. About 2,600 people live in Windsor, a town roughly 70 miles east, southeast of Richmond. Chief Rodney Daniel Riddle of the Windsor Police emailed a statement from the town and the police department that said the decision to file a lawsuit against Windsor was, quote, clearly political. The statement went on, Windsor, including its police department, remains vigilant in protecting the rights of all residents of the town, Isle of Wight County, Commonwealth of Virginia, and Nation, regardless of race or gender, who pass through its limits. Lieutenant Nassario of the U.S. Army Medical Corps was driving to Petersburg, Virginia last year when he saw police lights flashing behind him. He did not want to stop on a dark road, so he drove about a mile to a gas station, according to a lawsuit and video footage of the encounter. When he stopped, a Windsor police officer ordered Lieutenant Nassario then 27, to get out of his car, Lieutenant Nasario asked why he had been stopped and why the officers had drawn their guns. "'I'm honestly afraid to get out of the car,' he said as he stayed in his seat. "'Yeah,' says one of the officers, according to footage from his body camera. "'You should be.'" The officers proceeded to pepper-spray Lieutenant Nasario while he was in his car as he pleaded for them to make sure his dog, Smoke, was not choking in the back of the car. In April, an officer involved in the stop, Joe Gutierrez, was fired from the police department. The Attorney General announced an investigation that month. The state's lawsuit seeks court-ordered policy changes in the Windsor Police Department, including that traffic stops are conducted without bias and that use-of-force incidents are reported in compliance with state law. It also seeks a court order barring the Windsor police from engaging in discriminatory activities and a court-ordered period of independent monitoring of the department at its own expense, with a civil penalty of $50,000 for each proven violation of the Virginia Human Rights Act. The Attorney General's investigation found that black drivers accounted for about 42% of the department's traffic stops between July 2020 and September 2021. That number was much higher than expected based on the number of black residents in the town. In addition, the number of traffic stops and citations reported to the town council was lower than the number reported to the state for tracking and reporting purposes. Windsor is one of nearly one hundred Virginia communities to receive federal grants encouraging tickets awarded by the state authorities. The annual grants ranged last year from nine hundred dollars to the village of Exmore for catching seatbelt violations to one million dollars awarded to Fairfax County for drunken driving enforcement drunken driving enforcement, pardon me. Windsor got fifteen thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars to target speeders. After the footage of Lt. Nasario's stop was released last year, Windsor leaders moved to pursue ways to slow traffic while reducing police and citizen contacts, including electronic signs and rumble strips. The Windsor police also ended grant-funded patrols, saying it was in the best interest of our agency and our community. On Friday, the statement sent by Chief Riddle said that the police department practices non-discriminatory policing and has taken additional steps since the incident to increase training and accountability. The statement also called the data cited in the Attorney General's investigation questionable. It said that the town's seven-person police force includes minority representation. There was no need for Mr. Herring to file this lawsuit, it said except perhaps for the sake of headlines, which he will surely receive. A spokesman for the town, Joel Rubin, said the Attorney General's numbers were questionable because they did not take into account many people passing through the town, which is along a highway, Route, route 460. In April, Lt. Nassario filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. He accused the officers of illegally searching his car, using excessive force and violating his rights under the First and Fourth Amendments. He also accused the officers of threatening to destroy his military career by charging him with multiple crimes if he raised concerns about their conduct. A lawyer for Lieutenant Nasario could not immediately be reached for comment. Valerie Cofer butler the president of the NAACP chapter for Isle of White County, thanked the Attorney General for taking action and said the group had tried for months to negotiate in good faith with Windsor leaders. She said, We hope this lawsuit for the town of Windsor will take this matter seriously. Oh, pardon me. We hope with this lawsuit the town of Windsor will take this matter seriously and they will have no other choice but to sit down and have a results-driven conversation with the African-American community. Next news article comes from theroot.com. Written by Rachel Pilgrim, it was posted on the 6th of January. Manhattan DA says office will only prosecute serious crimes. Alvin Bragg Manhattan's new district attorney recalled his own experience with the criminal justice system as a black youth growing up in Harlem. Manhattan's first black district attorney, Alvin Bragg, released a memo announcing changes to the borough's historically tough criminal justice system just days after being sworn in. Bragg's policy reforms include not seeking jail time for certain misdemeanor offenses, and investigating, pardon me, and investing in alternatives to incarceration and restorative justice. Bragg's campaign platform promised a fairer justice system, according to the New York Times, and this memo cited that some changes are drawn from his experience with the system while growing up in Harlem. The memo said, Growing up in Harlem in the 1980s, I saw every side of the criminal justice system from a young age. Before I was 21 years old, I had a gun pointed at me six times, three by police officers, and three by people who were not police officers. He also mentions posting bail for family members, according to CNN, which will also be affected by his policy changes. He has now instructed prosecutors in his office to reserve pretrial detention for very serious cases. He also intends to limit the number of underage defendants tried in adult courts, and create a policy that allows requests for partially or unsecured bond in the same amount as cash bail requests. The next quote from CNN: Among the crimes, Bragg and his—oh, pardon me—among the crimes, Bragg said his office would not prosecute marijuana misdemeanors including selling more than three ounces, not paying public transportation fare, trespassing except a fourth-degree stalking charge, resisting arrest, obstructing governmental administration in certain cases, and prostitution. Misdemeanor offenses that are legally required to be given a desk appearance ticket will be offered diversion or community-based programs intended to help an offender said the memo. The office may also decline to prosecute the offense. Bragg wants to reserve pretrial detention for very serious cases, according to the memo, and he intends to limit underage defendants in adult courts. Bragg also outlined a policy to request partially or unsecured bond in the same amount as cash bail requests. Safety is paramount, Bragg said on Twitter, New Yorkers deserve to be safe from crime and safe from the dangers posed by mass incarceration. We will be tough when we need to be, but we will not be seeking to destroy lives unnecessarily through incarceration. Actually, pardon me, that says to destroy lives through unnecessary incarceration. In quote, Bragg's policies have drawn criticism from conservatives and law enforcement. Police officers don't want to be sent out to enforce laws that the district attorneys won't prosecute, said Patrick Lynch, president of the Police Benevolent Association. And there are already too many people who believe that they can commit crimes, resist arrest, interfere with police officers, and face zero consequences. However, the new DA has made it clear that he still intends to maintain some semblance of law and order while attempting to reduce... harm the criminal justice can have. I've prosecuted gun cases, and if you use a gun to rob a store or any armed robbery, you will be prosecuted. He said, I've prosecuted cases involving assaulting law enforcement, and if you punch a police officer, you will be prosecuted. But if you are houseless with an addiction problem and you steal toothpaste and some bread, you will be diverted for treatment to help break the cycle of recidivism. Also from the theroot.com, posted on the 6th, this one written by Mirjani Rawls, A pilot basic guaranteed income program providing $500 a month to 300 low-income residents launches in Atlanta. Applications for the program are set to open in the coming months. For low-income residents struggling to make ends meet in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, Pardon me, some help is on the way. On Tuesday, Lance, pardon me, Lance Bottoms announced that 300 residents will be receiving $500 per month for a year in a pilot for basic income. The program is called the Income Mobility Program for Atlanta Community Transformation, otherwise impact, and is a partnership between the City and the Urban League of Greater Atlanta. Those seeking to register must be over 18 and have a maximum income of 200% of the federal poverty line. Participants in the program will be chosen at random from everyone who registers. According to Newsweek, Mayor Bottoms had more to say about what the program embodies. We are seizing this moment to realize Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr.'s vision for addressing economic security and pervasive poverty, Lance Bottoms said. Dr. King said, The curse of poverty has no justification in our age. In the spirit of Dr. King's vision for the beloved community, the launch of the IMPACT program Takes us another step closer to creating one Atlanta, an affordable, resilient, and equitable Atlanta. Applications are set to open soon. The mayor's office encouraged residents to see if they qualify and join a wait list at the following address. This I'll read it and then I'll spell it. OlgaCoAimpact.org. That's U-L-G-A-C-O-A-I-M-P-A-C-T dot O-R-G where the program is described in detail. The Impact Pilot is not the only source of stimulus in Georgia, an $850 per month program aimed at black women in Georgia by the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund was also announced in December. It aims to give the money to 650 women for two years. This is not the only basic income program in the country. In fact, there are currently 33 in existence. Notably, one in Compton, California, under Compton Pledge, provides $1,800 every three months for two years to 800 low-income residents. In Patterson, New Jersey, Hudson Up gives $500 per month for five years to 25 participants. These pilots are used to help those who are shut out of welfare programs, as noted by co-director of Compton Pledge, speaking to NPR, who said, Guaranteed income makes a case for investing in our undocumented neighbors and formerly incarcerated residents. Sun Xiong said, in doing so, it addresses the reality of the nation's fragmented, punitive welfare structure. In 2019, then-Mayor Michael Tubbs of Stockton, California, helped create the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, acronym SEED, the program randomly selected residents. For $500 per month for two years with no strings attached, An extensive study found that SEED, quote, increased recipients' full-time employment by 12 percentage points and decreased their measurable feelings of anxiety and depression compared with their control group counterparts. Our next article, also written by Marjani Rawls, posted on the 6th, coming from theroot.com. Black teachers are leaving the profession behind in huge numbers. Recent studies show that diversity in the teaching profession has been on a sharp decline in the last two years. Due to COVID-19, there has been an unprecedented shortage of teachers, including in 18 of the 20 largest U.S. districts between 1988 and 2018. The number of teachers of color hired by the country's schools increased faster than the number of white teachers when it comes to diversity. However, on average, diverse educators also left their positions much more quickly. Now, due to factors concerning racial stress and upper management, black teachers are leaving the profession more than ever before, as an extensive report from Hetchinger lays out. It's been shown that students of color work better in the classroom if the facility is more diverse. Also, racism in the classroom has led to increased black parents to homeschool children. Yet the findings of the RAND report show a troubling trend. Here's the quote. Black teachers were more than twice as likely as other teachers in the winter of 2021 to say they planned to leave their jobs at the end of the 2020-21 school year. According to a report released by the Rand Corporation, and a slightly higher percentage of non-white teachers than white ones, 45% versus 42%, said that they were considering leaving their position last school year, researchers at the University of Arkansas' College of Education and Health Professions found the gap was 30% versus 22% than when teachers were asked if they were considering leaving because of reasons related to COVID-19. The Center for Black Educator Development, led by CEO Sharif El-Mekki, co-released with the teacher leadership and advocacy organization Teach Plus, a report outlining steps school leaders should take to retain black educators, they said. They have not spent Spent a second thinking about what kind of environment they are recruiting people into, says El who invokes Martin Luther King Jr.'s worry, expressed shortly before his death that he had integrated black Americans into a burning house. That could stand for teachers of color entering racially hostile school environments today, says El But there are some examples of states working to keep their minority personnel Mississippi, Massachusetts, and New Jersey have been doing things such as extending emergency licenses or adjusting test score thresholds that adversely affect black candidates the most. In particular, licensure exam requirements for new teachers in Mississippi was a great help. Preliminary data show that the waivers, which were due to end in 2022, have significantly boosted the diversity of teaching candidates in Mississippi. Between 2018 and 2020, the number of people of color entering educator preparation programs jumped by more than 500%. The growth in the number of white candidates was about 44%. Our final article for this week comes from, originally, the Four Corners Public Radio podcast program, It was posted by Tammy Graham back on December 24th. Meet the Southwest Colorado man leading the first all black expedition to the summit of Mount Everest. Next year, a group of mountain climbers hopes to make history as the first all black team to summit Mount Everest. Phil Henderson of Cortez, Colorado, is leading the expedition known as Full Circle Everest. He's worked in the outdoor recreation industry for almost 30 years and has been on expeditions to Everest, Denali, and Kilimanjaro. He joined us by Zoom to talk about the historic planned ascent of the world's highest mountain. The following is an interview. Several months ago, I learned about a pretty remarkable project that you're highly involved in. You're actually the expedition leader for the Full Circle Everest Expedition, Phil, Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of this project? Henderson. Yeah, well, I've actually been to Nepal several times and have built relationships, but, you know, 30 years ago, when I started working in the outdoor industry, it wasn't something that I really looked at. But when I saw, at that time, when I came to the industry, was there wasn't a lot of people of color who were doing the things that I was, that I had decided I wanted to do. You know, through the years... I've just kind of become a mentor and kind of a role model for a lot of people, but more specifically people of color who want to get outside and climb, ski, boat, those kinds of things. And so over the years, I just kind of embraced that role and have always been willing to give my time and experience and guidance to those folks who want to get outside. And over a number, again, number of years, I've just kind of run into other folks who look like me, who also enjoy sports of mountaineering and climbing and skiing. We just decided that since we were all going down that path, and I've had relationships and experience climbing and in the Himalayas and so on, that it was a good next step step project for folks on the team. Speak a little bit about the title Full Circle Everest and the year 1963 and how that plays into this project. Henderson. Well, you know, Full Circle itself is more so about, again, my recognition of people who want to get outside and having role models, you know, in the industry. And so just given, you know, kind of reaching my hand back and helping them and sharing my experiences and knowledge and places to go, all those things with future, you know, future generations. You know, the first American expedition to Everest was in 1963, which was the year that I was born. You know, a lot of younger, generational folks don't understand and know what was happening in our country back in the 60s, and I thought about that when I was there in 2012, where I was a part of the North Face in National Geographic tradition. There was a commemorative expedition to the first American expedition, so to be part of that again, it's kind of coming full circle. I don't think there were a lot of people of color who may have been thinking about climbing Everest back then, but then, in reality... We know that they were there. We just don't know the stories. We don't know those folks' stories or other people of color back then who were maybe engaging in their climbing or other outdoor activities. Now we're, you know, 50 or 60 years out of that and to be a part of the first all-black expedition and be in a position to be the leader of that expedition. For me, when I look back to the year I was born, it comes full circle questioner. I know a big part of the mission is obviously you spoke to a little bit is seems to be really emerging even more so here is getting youth of color into the outdoors and how important that is, Henderson. Yeah, again, I think just getting people especially youth of color because the opportunities have just been you know, when you look at how our society has progressed the opportunities are there but for most kids of color who are living in urban areas, you know They've been somewhat disconnected, and to me, it's more of a systemic thing when you look at the type of educational programs or after school programs or any of those kinds of things that we actually provide for young people, especially young people of color these days. Graham, anything else you'd like to share about this project, Phil, or you know what it means for you personally, or just anything? Henderson, yeah, a couple of months ago, first week of April or so, I'm really just excited. Oh, pardon me not a go, a couple of months, first week of April or so. I'm just really excited to have the opportunity to be part of the expedition, talk talk to people about the nature of the expedition, and bring something positive, not just to the black community, but even the community I live in right here in the southwest Colorado, and to other communities around the globe. And that's me in a nutshell. My vision is very global. And I know that this expedition has resonated, resonated throughout communities, you know, in places that I visited. That's the goal, is to have a positive impact in a time where we need something positive in our lives. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. and Please tune in to all of our programs.